Hello and welcome to The Garden Pod. This one is with another expert. Her name is Joan Stockbridge and she's helping us here at school with child protection and safeguarding. So it's a serious and important issue. Um, this really, I think, is mainly aimed at teachers but could also be interesting for parents. Uh, we've also got our Deputy Head Amy Ward and our Assistant Head Dan Normbury co-hosting with us um, and they are the child protection officers within the secondary school. Um, so we've got the right people in the room, in other words. Um, without further ado, I think I'm just going to hand it on. So, Joanna Stockbridge. Okay, we're straight into it. Um, another guest here at Gardens National School this week. We're introducing Joanne Stockbridge, um, who's come from a, to us to help us with some issues around child protection and safeguarding. We've also got in the room our co-hosts for this week, Dan Norbury, one of our assistant heads in the secondary school, and um, Amy Ward, who is the deputy head in the secondary school, and you are both our child protection officers. And we'll explore that a little bit more in a minute. Yeah. So Joanne, maybe you can start. Um, if you just give us a bit of an indication of, sort of who you are, what you do, and why you're here. Okay, um, my name's Joanne Stockbridge. Um, I'm from the UK and I'm an educational and child psychologist who has a specialist interest in child protection. Um, that stems from my original background and training being in social work, um, but also my interest in child development generally. And uh, Dan, Amy, maybe you can just give us a bit of an indication of what you mean by a child protection officer within the school. So there are four child protection officers in school, myself and Amy, and in primary we have Ashley Cornfoot and Joe Rice, and we coordinate um, child protection policy and also um, uh, handle disclosures within school. Uh, that doesn't mean that we're the only people that do that, and, and a lot of what we'll talk about today actually is how we're trying to move uh, responsibility for safeguarding child protection from being held just with us and uh, make sure that we... Uh, making it a whole community responsibility. Okay, and Amy, maybe you can tell us why we've brought um, Joanne in to, to help us. Yeah, so we've been working as a team of four um, initially, looking at our guidelines and our policies, and uh, we really wanted some external expertise and a critical friend to come in and to um, really help us shape the way we're moving forward with child protection. And like Dan says, to move away from just the four of us taking responsibility for child protection and moving to everybody in the school being part of this safe community. Great. So this is potentially quite a heavy subject to have. Mm. And, and these guys, Amy and Dan, have a, have a very difficult job and a fairly thankless job and a lot of this goes on behind the scenes. So I think, you know, on behalf of all of us at school, thanks for the work you do. And that's <laughs> worth saying in a public forum because they don't, they don't get thanked really ever um, for, for this job. So well done and thank you for that. Uh, but this really is very, very important is sort of at the crux of what we need to be doing as a school. Yeah, I think all, all of the research, and we, we've, we've talked about this um, in school a lot, that in order for children to achieve and to engage, they really need to be safe and happy first. And um, uh, we're, we're well aware of that. We made well-being one of our uh, core values in school, and a real fundamental part of that is making children safe. Um, so we do a lot of work... Um, around making sure that children are emotionally uh, happy and fulfilled um, and what we're really focusing on is the aspect of, of safety and uh, making sure that when children come to school they're able to access their, their learning in the best possible way. 
John, maybe you can jump in here. We talked just briefly before we start recording about some of the words that we use, uh, one of them being safeguarding, one of them being child protection, um, and then maybe some others, I don't know. Um, but should we just sort of describe what we mean by that, maybe from your point of view? What we're talking about when we're thinking about safeguarding and child protection is thinking about what do we need to do for the individual but also in terms of the school and the wider community. What are the things that we can do to help build resilience both in the child, the parent and the school to make sure, as Dan said earlier, that they're as emotionally secure and able as they can be um, to be able to kind of achieve well in school. And this is, this is not an issue simply for, for GIS, this is a worldwide issue and very much there's been a move in thinking from thinking about um, children individually to thinking about the whole community round about the child and, and the phrase that it takes a village to raise a child is particularly relevant here. So one of the things that we're also thinking about is how do we include parents, how do we include all the, the different staff involved in the school, it's not just about the teaching staff. But what, do we also, what can we also do in terms of building the resiliency of the children that we actually have um, coming into school every single day? Okay, great. Um, and in terms of... Are we talking here then about being proactive? Is that, what we're, is that the, sort of the key, the key yeah, action? Yeah, and I think that was the word I was just thinking as Joanne was speaking then. Like lots of our role is um, responding to disclosures and to... Um, reports from staff where there are concerns about children but as importantly it's about thinking how we can be proactive, how we can shape our curriculum, how we can use our GIS learner skills, um, how we can um, look at our models already in the school to build that resilience and to build those skills with the children that we have at GIS so that we essentially reduce the, the need for the response um, in the kind of work that the child protection officers typically have done historically. Okay, so when you say um, disclosures, we're not going to get into this too much, but I think it's important just to get this context right. Um, we're then talking about being reactive when there is a problem. Yeah. And there is a spectrum of problems, from the very serious um, to the still very important, perhaps, but you know, uh, not what you would consider a sort of involvement of police or anything like that. Is a, there's a range of the spectrum involved yeah. in trying to protect. And I think when we talk about disclosures, I think it's really important to um, understand that there is that range and that sometimes um, we're talking about, you know, quite minor things that happen on a day-to-day -day basis and it's not the team of child protection officers who are always following up on that, but working with a number of staff across the school to put those support networks or systems in place to, to help students. But sometimes there are some... Yeah, much uh, more serious disclosures or um, times that students or staff or parents are really worried about the safety of a child and they will talk to, to one of us. So maybe for this next 20 minutes or so it would be worth exploring, um, and we can change this if you want, but worth exploring what makes a healthy school, what does that actually look like, um, and maybe how parents are involved, how teachers are involved and how kids and students who involve themselves and what, mm -hmm. what that looks like at each level. So maybe, John, it seems like a great point to bring you in. Okay. What does a healthy school look like? What kinds of things should we be seeing? 
Well, if we want to relate it to healthy schools, but also kind of relate it to the research that talks about how you improve resilience and well-being within schools, one of the kind of key features is about communication. And communication works at all sorts of different levels. And um, communication specifically in relation to kind of child protection, if we're thinking about it as a preventative strategy, one of the key and very important elements is relationships and communication between teachers and parents. Because working in an international school or living in an international school context, there's, there's lots of people from very different kinds of backgrounds and people can start to feel isolated. So having kind of open and easier communication between parents and teachers can help you know, to support parents in a very low-level, unobtrusive way, in a way that would normally happen within any kind of community where there's just people looking out for each other. So teachers taking the time and, and parents making the time to be available, say, at the beginning and the end of class so that they can touch base and check in with each other and, and just comment, you know, if people are, are aware, for example, that somebody's partner's away and they're on their own, just the kind of normal everyday living things which can make parenting a little bit more difficult. Mm. So communication at that level can be very important. Um, yesterday we did some training in school round about communication within the schools. So that is about making sure that people are absolutely clear about the communication systems that are available within the school. And really the training yesterday was about enhancing that, because already we have good communication systems here. Enhancing that and helping teachers, in particular, with their thinking skills. So if they have some concerns, they know what to do about those concerns and how to respond and who to go to. And one of the other things that I think that's really, really important is people realising, whether they're parents or whether they are teachers, that we all have all sorts of different communication skills. This isn't something kind of very special. Or, and, and part of the, the job yesterday, part of the training yesterday, was about demystifying the whole process. So the very normal things that we'd be doing every single day of just engaging eye contact, um, saying hello to somebody, checking in, you know... A gentle touch on the shoulder just to kind of ask somebody if they're okay. All these little things which let us know that we are being noticed and listened to and being paid attention to. And that applies to relationships, whether it be with the, the parents, the children, or even between teachers as well, so that people know that people are emotionally available and ready to kind of listen to the other, the other person. I think that's um, a, a really, really powerful thing that we as adults in the community should be modelling. Um, I, I saw a, a psychologist a few years ago talk about micro-moments being one of the most important things that um, staff can do in a school, which is just allowing children, allowing students to see staff in the corridors saying hello and smiling and making eye contact and having an emotional connection and, and modelling that. And then students then buy into that atmosphere and understand that that is normal behaviour, looking out for each other is normal behaviour, and that that is a really important aspect of a safe school, I think. It's a really important aspect as well about ethos and culture, because we spend lots of time trying to write this down, but actually what's actually done in practice, what the children see every day, is how a culture or ethos gets embedded. It's not about reading a policy or a procedure, it's what we actually do every day. It's about the tone of our voice, it's the way we, we address each other, um, just all those little ways of kind of touching base with each other that just help to protect children in ways you just don't really 
you don't think about because it it's so normal mm. and that's one of the things that you know we're really trying to get across this notion of it takes a village to raise a child that just those all those normal things that happen every single day are protective and resilience factors so a big part of child protection which may be or safeguarding which may not be something that teachers would lead to or or go on, on an average course and talk about what you're saying is there's just these little behaviours that we do day by day that build up a culture within the school, whether that's a smile or a hello, or just, uh, just be nice to each other. Yeah. Right. And some, one of the, I think that's one of the things that he, sometimes teachers can be frightened or not clear about what it is that they can do, so mm. kind of breaking it down into these micro-skills or these just normal human interactions that people do every single day just kind of helps to demystify it and let people understand how they, why, how and why they play a really important role. Yeah. And I was going to say, you, you used really nice examples yesterday of um, working with children who'd, who'd identified teachers mm -hmm. who'd just noticed them and paid a little bit of attention and said, how are you, how was your weekend? Mm -hmm. Not really done anything out of the ordinary, but that, that had then made a big difference to, to their lives Massive, without yeah. deliberately doing anything. Mm -hmm. um, just being a nice, normal human being, basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So can we just unpack something you said there um, about not knowing what behaviours are okay and what might not be? with regard to some of those sort of nice things that like you said a little touch on the shoulder. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking back 10 years ago in the UK, uh, an entire room of people would have sort of taken a shot and mm -hmm. taken a breath at that mm -hmm. time. I think things have changed, mm -hmm. thankfully now. Mm -hmm. But maybe just talk a little bit about, uh, about that, about where our terms are. Yeah, okay, well already in the school, and perhaps the teachers will be better able to talk about this, we're also do, we're already doing training in school around about safe touch, So one of the, and, and parents will naturally and automatically usually do that at home, so having an awareness that a gentle touch on the shoulder in a public place is an entirely acceptable thing, as opposed to somebody doing something inappropriate in a, in a, in a secretive place. And so the school is already spending time um, incorporating that into the curriculum and actually looking at what are what is safe touch and how will children know the difference between what is a safe touch and what is an unsafe touch. Does this happen mainly in the primary school? Yeah. 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 And it's one of the areas that we were talking about today in terms of how do we widen this out to the school and um, how can we teach that in primary school but also in secondary school. Because one of the other aspects that is quite unique and different possibly about international schools compared to maybe state-run schools is that our children tend to travel a lot, for example. They're expected to go off to conferences and represent the school or they go on international holidays and possibly will be travelling on their own more than other children might, might, might possibly do. So it's again, it's about thinking about what are those self-protection skills that the children can develop. And one of the kind of key things there actually is about self-confidence and self-esteem and the kind of images that are the, the kind of body posture, the tone of voice, the eye contact, all those different things that um, we can teach older children, teenager children for example, to understand about how that works and the message that that gives out to people around about. Um, with the younger children it's more about um, how their bodies work and which parts of the areas are which parts of the body are private and who should be touching and who shouldn't be touching. And these are kind of basic rules, the basic boundaries that children will be taught um, in every culture. Um, but one of the challenges that we do have here is that we're in a very diverse culture in Malaysia and this brings all sorts of opportunities and challenges. 
and that's one of the things that we spend a great deal of time talking about in school um, when we're thinking about child protection and people's different kind of views and perspectives on what's okay and what's not okay. So that brings with it its own sets of um, things to make us think about. <laughs> one of the things that we've talked about with students quite a lot and with our staff is about, um, I think Joanne mentioned earlier, just having conversations. So if there's something you're not feeling comfortable with or you think is a little bit weird or... Uh, doesn't sit quite right with you talk about it and yeah. ask the questions so we are all coming from very different experiences and different cultures and um, different norms and so just being able to have that really open dialogue and say I'm not quite comfortable with this or this isn't what I would normally expect yeah. um, is important so we have we've spent time uh, talking with students about identifying adults they can feel safe talking to and, and thinking about that ahead of time um, and as Dad met, Dan mentioned, having um, you know people they connect with in the school who they can be quite open with about how they're feeling. So if I can just try and join the dots. So we talked about that um, general set of behaviours which focus on resiliency, well-being, feeling comfortable and feeling confident mm-hmm. within this uh, sort of village atmosphere of the school that we want to create, which then leads us to a situation where people are feeling uncomfortable or something maybe that they're, they're not happy with. But they're much more likely to discuss that openly uh, with with an adult yeah. or somebody that they trust. So we kind of head things off at the pass, or we have a an early early alarm system if mm-hmm. if things if something isn't quite right. But that, yeah, yeah. If there's yeah, exactly right. And um, what what we've talked a little bit about recently is trying to increase the likelihood of people talking about something that's making them feel funny yeah. um, what what we don't want is for people to have an eyebrow raising moment something that makes them feel funny and then just try and explain it and not and not pass it on to anyone um, because that, that could form a bigger picture that, that, that might need addressing so why is it that people don't if they, that eyebrow raising moment happens or that, that, that thing happens why do people think it'll be okay? There's a whole range of reasons and and this is a huge area of research um, right across the world about why people don't report and it's one of the you know the areas that we've had to kind of look at very closely in some other countries when in fact there was a whole lot of information about a child being vulnerable and it wasn't passed on and one of the, the, the main things that people will hold people back from reporting is that they're worried about being mistaken, that they might have got the information wrong. Um, another reason would be that people are worried about confidentiality and are they going to be identified. Um, another reason that people don't report, and this tends to be more in institutions and organisations like schools and hospitals, is that people are unclear about communication. You know, who am I supposed to go to and what's going to happen after that? So lack of trust in the system can also be an issue as well, which is, again, back to why we're doing this work at this point in time and why the school's kind of using outside um, consultants like myself to kind of help think about what, where are the potential hiccups in our own communication systems? What do we need to think about? And sometimes when you're actually in the system, it's difficult to kind of see that. So having somebody from the outside helping you think about that can, can be useful. 
But there are a whole range of another issue that would be particularly relevant in a multicultural, multilinguistic setting would be language difficulties. Um, because within the school we have people who speak a whole range of different languages and you know, just the kind of having to speak to somebody in a, in a foreign language can, can hold people back, all these different sorts of things. Um, trying to remember some... I think what we're in, in our development work, we're constantly trying to improve these systems that we're talking about. And um, within our child protection team, um, we don't have a lot of linguistic skills, for, for example. So we're, we're really trying to broaden um, the number of people that we're involving in that and uh, trying to distribute responsibility a little bit so that we can think about ways of improving the likelihood of reports being made or reducing vulnerability in different ways. Which is a great point, and I guess easily missed, right? That if somebody speaks really only Japanese at yeah. any point, how are they going to find an adult they can trust if they can't communicate yeah. effectively with yeah. in their home language and language that they feel comfortable in? It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so Joanne mentioned that these are opportunities and challenges, so you know, it's easy to identify the challenges. What we're trying to do is figure out where the opportunities are to, to bridge some of those gaps, basically. And improve. And improve, yeah. And the other challenge or and opportunity that we have is that there are just so many different um, cultural perspectives, and that's again one of the things which was very interesting yesterday in the recent experiences is how do we bring in those cultural perspectives? Because certainly in other countries, there's been occasions when people haven't um, reacted because they thought, oh well, that's normal within that particular culture. And actually, the behaviour wasn't normal in anybody's culture. And but people again were apprehensive about making judgments. And one of the things that teachers can be reassured about if they're thinking that they need to speak to one of the child protection officers is that you know all information that's passed on is confidential. But also decisions are made in a group. It's never just like one individual making a decision. And as as Dan said, one of the things we're looking at is how do we bring in people from all the different kind of cultures groups that we have in the school to help inform thinking, to help inform decision making so that the, the judgments and the decisions that are made are made with the fullest range of information. It's a qualitative, it's a quality decision um, that's, that's based on you know cultural norms and what we know to be best practice and what are agreed thresholds. Um, so all these things are woven in together. But, but as I say, because of the complexity, it's never going to be one person making a decision. It's a whole range of people thinking together. Um, it's, just, it's interesting you just flip that in a way that I wouldn't actually have thought about it, in that we can look at a behaviour or something that's happened mm -hmm. and presume that's okay because it's a different culture. Mm -hmm. And I naturally go the other way. Mm -hmm. We might have... Um, cultural things that are acceptable in one mm -hmm. so I wouldn't report it because that's fine. Mm -hmm. My culture says interesting mm -hmm. to look at the other. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can I think it's worth digging a bit deep on that. And I say that as we've got a Scot, two English people and a Yorkshireman in the room. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yorkshire is, so, a, is, is a principality. Yeah. <laughs> it's very monocultural. <laughs> no, the no, you want to come up to us. Which is which is problematic for this conversation. Mm -hmm. But Certainly we live in Southeast Asia mm -hmm. and there is definitely an Eastern view and Western view that are sometimes opposing. I wonder mm -hmm. if we might, and neither's right, it's, it's just a different way of looking at things, right? And we talk about intercultural competence quite a lot at school. And so what kinds of things might come up within this context that as Europeans 
may look at slightly different to somebody from this area of the world? Are there common things that, that we all need to sort of understand the different perspectives on? Yeah, there are definitely common themes, but perhaps before even going into that, I think it's worth um, remembering that in Malaysia we are protected by the Child Act, so we have a Malaysian law, um, and you know, often perhaps people don't know the details of that or the outlines of that, but there is... There are some very clear guidelines um, stated in that Act that protect the children and set out certain expectations in terms of our context of where we are in the world. Um, and we use that Child Act to inform our policies and our guidelines and the, the kind of cultural norms that I guess we set up in the school um, and and have to adhere by in this uh, context that we're living in. So I and think that it's worth just remembering that. Culture, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. So. Okay. So yes, we do lots of different cultural scenarios, but that is always present at yeah. law to, to protect our children. I think, I think something that we uh, we need to be aware of in international schools, I think you mentioned the word interculturalism, and um, we've run workshops here on third culture kids and, and the difficulties that families have when they're coming into uh, a British school in Malaysia, whether they're already in, in Malaysia or whether they're coming from elsewhere, there are there are, are real challenges, I suppose, for students and for families um, in setting up the emotional, social links mm -hmm. um, that they need to quite quickly. So, you know, lots of our families uh, move around fairly regularly because, because of work, and I think it's worth um, highlighting that that, that can raise issues of, it, of its own, you know, our, our students get huge benefits from that and they're able to make friends easily and they have friends all over the world, but we, we spoke earlier about the importance of having strong emotional uh, connections and relationships and it can be difficult for students and parents to make those links quickly, especially when there's a, a language uh, barrier um, and that can lead on to, to some of the issues that we're, we're sort of alluding to. Okay. Can I, can I throw an example in? And we'll play around with it and see, see if it works. So, um, I'm going to get this right. Corporal punishment yeah. um, is something that's very common in Southeast Asia. It happens in government schools and uh, will often be a perfectly acceptable form of punishment within the home. Uh, now, we at school have a homeschool agreement which very clearly states that um, by sending your child to the school, you agree that that will not be something that you use. Nevertheless, they will probably that's still going on. So as a school, um, that's our values and, the, and the, the sort of cultural trump, I guess, that we're putting in. What should we be doing to help our community and help us all get on board to make sure that we're all kind of seeing from the same assumption? Is that too difficult a question? No, it's not too difficult a question. Um, corporal punishment, yeah, is the one that kind of can lead us into some quite complicated um, discussions. The bottom line is um, the Malaysian law is quite clear in saying that children should not be being physically assaulted. That's another way of thinking about it. However, it, it takes time to change cultures and we had exactly the same experiences in Europe as well. Um, the Scottish government, to go back to our local kind of context, only recently 
published guidelines on corporal punishment and what you could and couldn't do. And the initial line was you can't be hitting children under the age of three. Mm. And then there was also a, a list of things you weren't allowed to hit children with. And one of them, for example, was a wooden spoon. And we all had a bit of a laugh about that, you know. But that was where it was at at that point in time. However, things have now changed. And they're now saying, no, there should be no smacking at all. And, and that was really driven by the medical profession. But it's taken 20, 30 years for people to kind of get to that place. And every culture has its own kind of expectations around about that. And one of the important things would be to say that, you know, we're always, our first port of call would be to work with a parent to understand why they've got to a point of feeling that they need to smack their child. Mm. And yesterday when we were um, having our training, we were talking about an ecological framework for thinking about this. So it's not just about that situation, it's about the whole context around about that. However, there's also thresholds in there as well. So clearly if a child comes in with, you know, significant bruising, with broken limbs, things like that, that then takes it into quite a different kind of place. So there are levels of judgment that people are having to make as they're going along. But if a child comes in and tells us that they've been hit in some way, that would be, a, you know, you know, if, if it's viewed as being a kind of mild form of punishment, that would be an opening for teachers to go in and have a conversation with a parent about what's going on and help. And, and part of the training yesterday was understanding the position of the parent. Um, was it because this is normal within their, their context? Is it because they're under an awful lot of stress at this point in time because their partner's not there? Um, is there some sort of familial, you know, other problems going on that's kind of increasing stress in the family context? So it, it's about the school wanting to kind of support people in that in, in those situations. Um, but as I say, there have to be thresholds and cut-offs um, because we have to be absolutely clear that if a child is living in a, an unsafe environment, or in a chronic environment, where there's ongoing kind of you know, inappropriate levels of physical chastisement, that is going to affect their learning because they're going to be living in a, a state of fear and your brain doesn't work very well when you're frightened all the time. We know that very clearly. Um, there is a huge amount of research now about why hitting children is, is not good for them. Um, and it's, it's at a neurological level. We can actually evidence and prove that nowadays. But it's, it's taken time for culture to change because this is the way it's been um, for probably all of us sitting around the table. Um, it was the way we were brought up and it, you know, it takes time for these things to change. So... I'm not hearing the school being very black and white about this, um, although there are cut-off points, clear thresholds, um, but we need to kind of bring parents and cultures along with us. But that's open for discussion. It's kind of yeah, I think you've raised an important point. Uh, and going back to the idea of conversation and dialogue, um, you know, one of the things that we, we try and do at GIS and um, we want to do more of is engage with our families and work with our parents and be open to you know parents asking for support and help if they need it or or just some guidance or um, more information about about you know relationships at home and how um, this the school can support with that as well so I think it's about you know being trusting to have these open and honest conversations um, not about us finding something out and somebody getting into trouble but about you know raising these conversations and having a a safe platform in which to talk about them and look at yeah. how to, you know, perhaps change perspectives or cultures or, or not even change, but just understand. Dialogue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If we're talking about it, then that'd be a helpful thing. And I know that we've uh, Matt Sheldon, who's our parent, 
parent guy. Um, he <laughs> he goes home now. Um, he then goes a lot with sort of community leaders. So yeah. you know, m many of our communities have a sort of group who tend to lead and be the voice of that community based on language usually. Um, and I know that he engages with, with those guys quite a lot and uh, tries to get our messages out there. Okay, the parents thing. The two more kind of areas I want to cover if we can. The parents thing. You know this. This safe environment in school, everybody smiling at each other and, and being nice and happy, it makes a, an awful lot of sense. And we see it working, and a happy kid is a kid that's going to learn, and, um, and a happy kid is what we want. So where does home fit into all of this? Apart from like, coming in and, and talking, like in workshops and so on, how do we as a school do this as a triangle? What, what, what should we be doing? What, what, what should be going on? Yeah, I think it's a it's a really interesting point because there are there are going to be children in our school who have quite conflicting experiences in school compared yeah. to at home. We're we're a, ostensibly a British school in Malaysia. We have a very international flavour, but um, there are going to be children who have you know a, a very different home life to school, mm. as, as you just said. So I think parents need to be aware of that, teachers need to be aware of that and we need to try and help students to navigate um, navigate the way, their way through those uh, conflicting ideals um, and there's, I don't think there's an easy answer to that mm. um, but it comes down again to transparency and being open and, and having conversations so um, it's important for teachers to, uh, to try to know students and find out if they are you know, having difficulties in, in, with those scenarios, and equally for parents to to engage with us and say, "Look, I'm, I'm really struggling with the way that that you're approaching this." Yeah. Um, I think we we were talking earlier about this idea of intelligent disobedience, um, which is we believe re incredibly important for keeping children safe for them to to be able to to question when things don't seem right. You know, we're saying that if if we feel funny, then we, we should speak out about it. We want children to do the same. If they feel funny and it's not right, then you, you should do something about it. And that could work both ways. I like mm -hmm. the intelligent disobedience. So if something feels funny at school, mm -hmm. we hope that talk to parents and parents talk to us mm -hmm. immediately. Now, that, But that can be a, a quite a difficult thing for a child to do. So in, in our um, holistic uh, skills-based education, we want children to question and to be critical and to say, hey, Mr. Norbury, I'm, I'm not sure about what you're saying there. Yeah. Can we discuss it a little bit more? But in some other uh, context, maybe in their home context, then that's going to be frowned upon. Mm. You know, you're not, you're not going to be questioning your uncles and aunties and saying, hey, what you're saying doesn't sound right. Mm -hmm. that's, not, that's not okay. Yeah. So we're, in some cases, we're setting the children up to have conflicts. But that's the education that we believe is... Um, is going to uh, be valuable to them in the future and in the long term, but we also need to help them to navigate yeah. um, their, their home and family context. Which well. then makes it even more important that parents understand what we're trying to do within the school environment. Absolutely. So, so, so it lessens that conflict. Exactly. So understanding and buying into our skills-based education is really, really important. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Okay. Um, right, should we finish with systems and structures. That sounds interesting, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> so one of the things, Joanne, you mentioned earlier on was um, when, when you have the eyebrow-raising moment, there should be clear lines of communication. Perhaps expand upon that in a, 
in a school that's doing that really, really well, or, or in a community maybe, maybe that's a better word, that's doing that really, really well, what might that look like? In a community that's doing really, really well, um, what I think we need to kind of uh, talk specifically about an education community that's doing that very, very well. Um, staff, parents, children are very clear right from the outset who it is that they have to who it is that they have to kind of go to, and that information is made available to them right at the very beginning. It's regularly updated, and um, there's very kind of clear lines for for where information should go and the school at the moment has that. They have very clear lines. The reality is, though, that there are you know, human beings, and this is not just teachers, human beings have all sorts of other ways of communicating. And if you're not feeling completely sure about whether the information, for example, that you have is relevant or not, you might go to a friend or you might go to somebody within your department. And that's absolutely, at one level, very natural for human beings. And one of the things that we looked at yesterday was saying, OK, that could happen, but please ensure if you do that, that you go as soon as possible up the structure, up the lines of communication that have been delineated and, 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 and discussed over, you know, over the years. The, the other part that's really important in there is that people don't have to make a decision themselves about how important their information is. Uh, very often it can be just little pieces of information and it's not until we put all the pieces together that we actually figure out what the, the picture actually is. And we, we did a, a game with a jigsaw yesterday where people had lots of different pieces and, and eventually when all the information got together it was clear what the picture was. And, and that's the other thing to really get across to people, even though you might not think it's that important, but it was enough to raise your eyebrow or make you feel uncomfortable or a bit funny, pass the information pass the information on because it's, it's so, so important that we can pull together the information and, and look at the patterns, if there are patterns there. You can really see how these two things we're talking about work together. So I can really imagine a scenario where you don't have that trust in happy school, but you have amazing lines of communication, mm -hmm. but nobody's going to disclose or say stuff because they're worried about what impact it's going to have on yeah, them or exactly. me or whoever. Or they don't trust what the person they're telling is going to do. Yeah, what are you going to do with that information? Or the other way around. Yeah. You can have the happiest school in the world, but there isn't any any lines of communication to try and sort those issues out when they arise. So why it's important to and this is where ethos and culture are important. It's where also about reducing power dynamics are very important. So this is one of the strategies that we're looking at developing, rather than there just being child protection officers, widening um, the, the group of people into all levels of staffing, all different cultures, who would be a link person to help pass the information on. So reducing power dynamics, improving communication systems, those are the kind of key areas that we've been kind of focusing on, and upskilling staff as well, making sure that people recognise and understand what they're saying sometimes. Because all behaviours, you know, contextually dependent, but also the, the different developmental stages of the, of the child as well. So something that you might, we were talking about, you know, if a child presents with bruising injuries when they're four, that's quite different from a 15-year-old boy who's been playing rugby coming in with a black eye. Yeah. So, you know, the age and stage of development is also very important as well, yeah. so understanding all of this. Okay. But a key takeaway there that I'm taking here is that decision is not mine, whether that bruising is appropriate or not. That's, that's what it needs to be communicated. Yeah. Um, and, John, you've been working with a range of our teachers mm -hmm. and leaders yeah. and heads of the year and as many people as possible to try and 
get this message spread around, right? Maybe, Amy, can we finish with you? Yep, sure. No pressure. <laughs> um, okay, so at Garden, uh, safe garden child protection is really important for us. If you could sum up what we want to achieve and what we're, what we're trying to get to, and, and you know, I think we're doing a lot of this very, very well, mm -hmm. uh, based on the work that John's done with our team. Um, where are we heading? Sum it up at Garden. Um, so I think we are trying to set up a system where all of our communities, our students, our staff, our parents are upskilled and empowered to understand what we mean by child protection. Mm -hmm. um, we've worked today together on a new training programme for our staff next year. Um, so as we spoke about earlier, being a bit more proactive um, in our response to child protection rather than waiting for yeah. these things to come to us. Um, so a school where everyone's understanding um, what we mean by child protection and like we've talked about already somewhere that there's trust there's um, understanding of our our school cultural norms and um, our kind of agreed system that we're working in and that we can support each other and have that clear open dialogue um, if there is ever a challenge or a situation that we need help with anything to add Dan? I thought you did that perfectly, Amy. As <laughs> always, I've got something to add. <laughs> um, so all I was going to say is, I think, it's, it's. I'm not sure if I'm going to use the word refreshing. It's probably the wrong word, but I'm going to say it's refreshing mm -hmm. to, to hear that when we're talking about safeguarding and child protection, it's an everyday thing. It's little things that we do on a daily basis. It's a, a healthy environment and culture, and not just the big, bad, dark stuff which sometimes come, comes along and, and getting on the front foot. And it's everybody's responsibility as well. So, you know, it's, it's not down to child protection officers. It's yeah. down to everybody to create a safe school, and that includes students and parents as well. Fantastic. Joanne, thank you so much for thank spending you. some time with us. And Amy and Dan, thanks for thank you. coming along. And, and James, um, as always. That's it. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs>